What if? What if the struggle isn't real? What if everything you've been told is impossible is actually deliciously feasible? What if you could work anywhere, travel, find your purpose, all while growing your wealth and not spending it? Welcome to the Struggle Isn't Real podcast. I'm Cody Sanchez-Baker, and and my job here is to share how normal people have self-designed their lives, relationships, jobs, and bodies. The question to ask yourself is simply this. What if it was easy? Well, hello there, my friends. Welcome to another episode of The Struggle Isn't Real. I'm Cody Sanchez-Baker, and I'm kind of excited today, I got to tell you, because we've got a a real live celebrity on the line, Kumar Arora, and I have to embarrass him because he happens to be pretty humble. Um, But you heard his whole intro from Cleveland Hustles to, you know, his multi-million rev startups to his multiple serial entrepreneur pursuits. I'm sure you guys are going to be harassing him for angel startup investing since he does that as well. Um, But today we get to dive into some of the history, tricks and tips that Kumar has and uh, a new project that he's working on. So Kumar, I'm stoked to have you. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, happy to be here. So I was thinking about this last night uh, as I was reading through your website, um, which is Kumar-Aurora, A-R-O-R-A, for anybody that wants to follow him. Uh, and his social is at K-Aurora, uh, so K-A-R-O-R-A-007, um, across all of the social media sites. And um, one of the things that I really took away uh, that I liked from your site in particular, Kumar, was this quote that you have, which is that entrepreneurs skip climbing the corporate ladder. We're either building a rocket to the top or a bomb that can explode at any moment. And uh-huh. it got me thinking, uh, well, first of all, it's very tweetable, so you, they can tweet you uh, that one. But when did you decide that you wanted to build a company as opposed to be a part of a company? When did this quote sort of start ruminating in your mind? It's it's an interesting story because I never actually had the intentions of being an entrepreneur and growing up, you know, with the Indian household and just our standard education, the word entrepreneur never really existed. But for me, um, you mentioned the key word there was creating. And I think that was my big thing was that I always wanted to create things whether it was a product or an idea or something, I just wanted to be able to make something. And I think that was kind of the origin of it all. And I, I obviously moving forward after undergraduate career and, and whatnot, you can't really create something when you work a corporate job, you know, you're, you're meant to be doing something for somebody else. So for me, I think entrepreneurship just kind of came hand in hand with the idea of, you know, creating your own project. And so, so you went to school, you know, you go through the undergraduate thing um, and you're learning like most of us do uh, through rote and routine and, and memorization. Do you remember when did you, like when you graduated, what was your plan? What did you, what did you think when you were a college student? Like what uh, was the well, next I, I actually, I graduated in the worst possible time. I graduated in the recession. It was 2008. No one could get a job. Highest unemployment rates ever. And I remember during my exit interviews and leaving, leaving college, you know, I went to my advisor because I couldn't find a job. She said it, if you can't find a job, you have to make one. So again, you know, that, that emphasis of trying to do something because, you know, you have a degree and just because you may not use it for a job doesn't mean you haven't used, you can use it for yourself or your, your own mind. So uh, from that day on, I pretty much became an entrepreneur because of my environment. So I think that I truly became kind of a byproduct of what happened with the recession and um, just the, the experiences I went through. And I actually have never really worked a traditional job because of that. That's fascinating. And did you, I mean, I know when I, I, I did the corporate thing for a long time and, and I still you know, have mm-hmm. a partnership in one of them. And one of the, the toughest things for me was getting over the fear of, becoming a creator and thinking inherently that I have something that is worthy of, of creating inside. Did you ever worry about that when you were, you know, like you said, if you can't find a job, you, you have to create one. How did you have the confidence to go out and just do that? Oh yeah. I think everyone has that sense of fear. And I think that's actually necessary because the fear keeps, you know, the motivation and the drive going because 
when you create something, it's no different from a child or, or a baby, you know, and you have to study, you have to learn, you have to research, you have to continue to uh, grow yourself in order to grow your babies. And um, in the case of a, a small startup or a mid-sized business or even something bigger, you're constantly having to absorb more knowledge to give back to your baby. So for me, there's always a fear because you never want your baby to fall. You never want it to get hurt. You never want it to close up shop, you know? And I think for most entrepreneurs, we have that constant chase that we, every move we make, you know, there is a sense of fear that something could go wrong, but you have to have the confidence to keep going because it's better to have, you know, something that you love, which is your baby, than something you don't love that you have to deal with, like a corporate job. I, I couldn't have said it better. I think that's so true. It's funny. Yeah. I've, I've actually been struggling myself thinking about, I'm very process oriented. So I like to, mm -hmm. you know, time, sort of time block and figure out my day in a, in a meticulous way. And I find if I don't allow, you know, three hours for deep strategic work, my day can be stolen from me so quickly. So yeah. that the balance of, um, creative creation time or, or deep work and promotion or reactive tasks or, you know, going out and selling, let's say, I, I really struggle with that. Do you, how do you balance, let's say the deep work versus the daily work? Um, similar to yourself where you need to have that time for strategy. My way of doing that is to spend at least two to three hours reading. So that could be articles, that could be books, that could be um, something as simple as a Buzzfeed you know, posts on Facebook, I have to constantly try to read whatever I can that has no relevance to my business to bring that back to my business later in the day. Um, I believe that those who do that every day, um, it's almost kind of like your own schooling because you're keeping up with the world, you're keeping up with news, you're keeping up with changes in our environment, whatever it may be. I really think that doing that after your formal education can help you, um, especially as years go by and you develop this great habit. So I try to spend at least three hours a day reading. Interesting. I like that idea. Yeah. I, I don't know if I have a process around doing that specifically, but I do find that when I'm stressed or fearful or anxious or whatever term you want to use, the quickest way for me to get out of it is to put myself in someone else's thoughts. And I think the way that yeah. you do that is, is by reading. Then I really prefer long yeah. form. I actually don't read very much news at all, except yeah. uh, a BuzzFeed or Fast Company. Um, but right. as far as like traditional news, almost none. Um, and I'm, I'm surprised actually by how many entrepreneurs don't read, let's say like a daily newspaper or, or mm -hmm. morning television. What's your, what's your go-to source for news, let's say? Um, well, I usually start with the things I want to. So you mentioned a Fast Company entrepreneur, uh, TechCrunch. I, I read the ones that I, I, I want to dive into first just to have a pulse on what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I begin to deviate and I read Science Daily and just other things that are part of my own interest. And then obviously, you know, with the internet, you can always get lost in information. And I just feel like by doing that, it's, it's very, um, it, it creates some sort of peace in, in yourself because it's not all about hustling super hard. It's all about always about being mindful, um, being respectful to yourself and also absorbing knowledge because no matter what you read it can be applied at some point someday for yourself so for me i like to start my day that way instead of rushing to work or um rushing to the first phone call because i believe that you should be doing that do something for yourself first before you uh, kind of move forward with your day and that's actually something i've been doing i think now for about five six years continuously yeah well you have a very um like peaceful persona to you. I mean, even when you speak about things that you're very passionate, you can tell that you have sort of a level-headedness. I'm sure that you have your moments uh, like we all do. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> whether, you know, it's, we're talking about emotional intelligence, we're talking about being mindful, but um, not every day can be uh, um, calm and easy. You know, you need to have the bad days to have the good days too. So yeah, of course there's a day where something might go wrong or something's more stressful, but you just have to remember, you know, you can get through it. Um, you've gotten thus far and, uh, you know, our bodies are made for it. That's true. And, and what about, you, yeah. know, you, you have multiple pursuits, um, multiple businesses mm -hmm. and multiple endeavors and, you know, kind of multi-passionate. And, and I think with that can sometimes come stress. 
if, if they're not managed properly. So one, I'd love for you to share with us kind of how, how do you explain the myriad of things that you do and categorize them? And then how do you manage having these multiple demands upon your time? Yes, it's definitely not an easy task to take on multiple projects at once. Um, for those out there, I recommend not doing it the way I do it. It's, um, it's one of those things I've been learning as I go, but I developed a system that works for me, but it doesn't necessarily apply that easily to others. I think that we all have our own ways of doing it. Um, on a business level, of course, if you make an investment, you want to try to have an operations manager and a strong strategic manager in place for everything you do that can carry out your vision, your vision, your missions, and, and your ideals for the company. Um, so are, are that's something any different? investor should do. Like you have yes, an operations you manager and, and a str uh, strategic advisor or a strategic manager. Yes. You want to make sure that you have two different people for that role, specifically because operations are day-to-day -day running the business where strategy is your long-term plan. Um, if you look at it in the sense of, say, an army, you might have a general who looks at long-term, but your cavalry might be hand-to-hand -hand combat the day of. So you want to make sure that you line up people that are very different but have different plans, but they all retain the same vision or uh, mission statement that you do that can carry that out. So I try to have somebody in place with, within all of my projects. If there isn't someone in that place, then I usually take that role. Um, and that's kind of what my role is today is that I play center for the businesses I work on that need the most love. Um, once that's taken care of, then I can clone myself to then bounce to the next project. So my system has worked um, pretty well overall, but you know, there's always hiccups and, and problems. Not everything can be perfect when you're building yourself some sort of small empire with different industries within um, one house, you could say. Yeah, I can imagine. And do you, do you have then these people that oversee multi-businesses for you? Or you have them within each of your separate businesses, typically? Um, there are a few, of course. You know, when, when certain services align um, across multiple, um, multiple um, businesses. Can you hold on one second? I'm sorry. Of course. Don't worry. trick that I recommend for those who have um, multiple businesses at once is remember that some services um, cross over. So obviously your legal department, your accounting, those things will always cross over. So it's obviously better to um, keep that stuff in house and have them serve multiple arms. Interesting. So that's one thing that I do um, to help obviously alleviate costs, but then, um, you know, kind of keep the team together. So my accountants, and you know my legal department they all kind of handle um just the, the array of businesses that i have and how many businesses do you have right now what are the projects you're working on i'm i'm on number seven right now yikes okay so give us the quick yeah. rundown so my most recent investment was a company called soda um, i actually did that on the show in cleveland hustles it's um a completely handcrafted soda, no artificial colors, no artificial flavors, um, actually hand fruits turned into soda um, in Cleveland, Ohio, fully manufactured. And the guys that I invested in are amazing. And um, I'm so happy to be part of them because for me, it's such a great learning experience because I've always been the science guy, the tech guy, the fashion guy, but I've never been the food and beverage guy. So for me, I'm moving into a territory where I'm learning to learn and master a new industry um, figure out distribution, figure out product development, figure out marketing for a completely different demographic that I've never had to do before. So this is fun because um, I go from, you know, investor to advisor to partner um, to employee in some capacities where I'm actually working within the company, developing marketing plans, creating uh, their web plan and whatnot. And it's fun because for me, I get to start all over again in some case and uh, do it with just some amazing individuals. Yeah, that's fantastic. Isn't it funny? It becomes yeah. a little bit of an addiction, I think, having this constant state of change, at least for me. I love uh, stretching and learning new new skills and being surrounded by, by novelty. I think, uh, I mean, I look, I look back at my career thus far, and, and I look at other entrepreneurs, probably similar to yourself, that I believe that we aren't meant to just do one thing our whole life. I think that we are supposed to create those challenges, 
we are um, supposed to get excited like that. I think that entrepreneurs themselves um, enjoy being in the trenches more than they prefer living at the top of a tower. <laughs> uh, I think that's just who we are. And uh, for me, I just see myself constantly wanting to come up with new ideas and, and kind of create that cycle all over again to, you know, get that feeling once again. And um, it's exciting because when you go from zero to 60 and then you go 60 to flight, you know, that's when you get to see the last, say, five years of your project, like really take off and you see what happens with it. And um, it's really the journey of how you've navigated. That's more fun to talk about, to see through photos. It's those memories that we kind of carry. And I think that entrepreneurs really enjoy that. Yeah, I could. We kind of forget because we're too busy um, kind of looking towards the future goal, but we don't, we forget what we may have accomplished, say, a year ago. Oh yeah, isn't that the truth? Yeah, I yeah. um, <laughs> I think in in my pursuits, I get um, very future focused. But especially around this mm -hmm. time of year, I have a, a process each year of kind of writing down every single little thing that I accomplished over the last year. And I, I you know, this is when I set my intention for the following year as well. And during Thanksgiving, I start writing down all the things that I'm thankful for that accomplished this year. And then coming into December, I start thinking about what I want to accomplish next year. But it's such a cool process to sit down and look at all of the things that compound that we, mm -hmm. I think, as type A personalities immediately um, move forward from upon accomplishing them. And then to look back over the years, I, I kind of like hard copy notebooks for that reason. Um, it's pretty incredible yeah. to see how many things you can accomplish. Maybe not, like they said, we, we overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and severely underestimate what we can accomplish in five to 10. Um, and looking back over that five to 10 year period, it's pretty astounding, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So what do you, do you have a process of like gratitude or of making sure that you're not always focused on the next flight? Um, yeah, you know, I think that as an intern in the terms of looking too far ahead and thinking about your future goals, having a lot of short term goals that you can celebrate your small successes and your small wins really helps an entrepreneur and helps myself personally. So I always make sure I've got a goal of the week, a goal of the month, really? um, and obviously a long-term plan. And um, I try to hit my goals of the week every week. Uh, even if it's something as small as um, securing a new office space or dropping a new project of some sort or um, doing a podcast like this, this could be a goal of the week. So as long as you have certain goals, it keeps you motivated, keeps you positive because you want to have wins more than losses every day. And that could, doesn't apply strictly to money, but that could be about um, marketing. That could be about product development, you just want to kind of hit your milestones. So I think that's a great way for entrepreneurs to think smaller. And we've always heard the term, you know, have baby steps. And there's a reason we do that is because it's easier to celebrate small successes than it is to try to um, wait the drought and score the big one. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a great principle that I've been using for a while. I've kind of tried that. I love the goal of the week idea. I yeah. definitely get more long-term focused um, and I have a lot of gratitude, but I don't think I have a lot of mini timelines. So I'm going to steal that one from you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, it definitely works. <laughs> what about, so I'm, I'm curious, you've invested in, you know, seven different companies or invested and built seven different companies, whichever way you want to look at it. Mm -hmm. And um, you on Cleveland Hustles get pitched ideas uh, frequently, and I'm sure also your email inbox, um, you must see a lot of <laughs> yeah. different ideas. How do you, what's your thought process when, when you're analyzing a company or when you're analyzing an opportunity, how do you think through whether you want to dig deeper into it and potentially invest? Well, for me, I'm not a trip, uh, typical VC. I'm nowhere near their level of a firm. But for me, my big thing is that well, actually, it's a couple of things, but the first one is that I need to know how this investment is doing something different. Um, every investment I've ever made in made has always been unique in such a way where I, they're doing something different for their community. They're doing something for their industry. Something that's just a radically different approach because that kind of represents who I am. And for me, that's the second part of this whole thing is it has to relate to me. And that's what separates me from a typical investor or a VC firm is that I only invest in projects that I'm extremely passionate about or I have somewhat of a hobby built into it because I've 
Um, I've learned that over the course of time, I don't have to make investments strictly on an Excel file. I can do it because of my heart. And almost all my investments have become glorified hobbies because of that. So for me, I never feel like I'm leaving work. I never feel like I need to take a vacation because I love the people I work with. I love that I, the stuff that I do. And I love my surroundings because of that. So those are probably the top two things I look for in an investment. Um, and it's not your traditional thing. You know, most people will tell you, you know, you want to see the founders, you want to see their, um, their level of growth. You want to see their, their pitch deck. But for me, it's really about, do you love what you do? Do I love what you do? And is it something completely different that I've never heard of? And those are usually the things that I, I love to hear. Yeah. I remember when, uh, I started my last company, um, I, <laughs> I, I think I didn't realize how much you really do have to love what you're doing because, you know, I've talked about this before. It was a profitable company and, you know, thankfully we built it in a way kind of like you talked about. I almost like outsourced myself out of the business. You know, I eventually, I mm -hmm. wanted to be able to run sustainably without me, which is what happened with threads. And so somebody else could profit from it and plug and play my different parts of the company, which is perfect. Um, but I built a company on my, like on a pain point, which, you know, I know in business school, they, they talk about that a lot. At least they did when I went to Georgetown, it was a lot of focus on, well, what are the things that are a pain point for you, or you need a solution for, or you wish somebody would fix this. And so I built a business around that. But the problem was, is that I like fashion, but I built this business because I hate shopping and I really don't enjoy like the whole putting together of clothing process. And then wouldn't you know, I built a business around like where I would have to do a lot of shopping and putting together outfits and thinking about fashion all day. Um, and so I only realized in retrospect, like, oh yeah, I don't really love doing this. And even though it is profitable and making good money, it's not how I want to spend my hours and minutes and years and days on earth. Um, and so I really like that focus of doing businesses that you're passionate about. Cause I don't know, I think you could make money in just about anything these days. Yeah, I mean, if you're passionate enough, there's no reason why it couldn't become something that can generate income. But the one thing that you mentioned that I've also talked about very frequently the last few years is that we are meant to have multiple loves. We are meant to do more than just one thing. And, and I tell this to everybody that we aren't supposed to just have one job or when they tell you, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's a false statement. I think that it should be what all can you do or be while you're growing up. So for me, whether it's food and beverage or science or tech or fashion, every year that goes by, you have a certain passion, but that can always evolve as, t as time goes on. I don't think that for me, I want to be a fashion designer for the rest of my life and design sunglasses, nor do I want to see myself pushing a soda company. I've, I've um, become comfortable with the idea that I can continue to keep doing cool things uh, for the next 30, 40 years of business. And I think that a lot of people forget that because we've been so attuned with the idea of the catchphrase, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what do you want to do after college? Or what type of major do you want? You know, we've been told that it can be one thing, but you know, guys like Elon Musk are, are changing the world from automobiles to home to space. Um, you know, guys like Steve Jobs change music, change computers, change uh, movies through Pixar. You know, they do so many cool things. And I think that we all should try to achieve that because there are people out there that have done it that have been led successful um, personal and business lives that I think that we all should try to do the same thing you know it's funny that you talk about that because I think I couldn't agree more forcefully and because I think that we focus a lot on this idea of what like what do you want to be what do you want to do and we don't talk a lot mm -hmm. about why or the purpose that we each have and why we each want to get up in the morning before the sun rises and keep working after it sets um, because we found that thing that sort of fuels us. And it's not a what, it's for me at least, it's that, you know, I have this, this passion for building businesses and meeting like-minded humans that want to build something and leave a legacy behind. And so everything I do is around this idea of enabling more humans to do that, whether by my companies where I get to hire people and then allow them to make 
there sort of why profitable or uh, building, you know, businesses like this, this podcast in my website where I talk to people about how to do it and hopefully enable them to go and build it themselves. Um, but like, since yeah. I figured that out, a lot of the small decisions become so much easier when I just allow myself to go back to my why, which is, is this, is this going to let me build more businesses and do more of what I love every single day? And if it doesn't, then it's gone, no matter how much money it makes. And I remember when we talked before, yeah. you said that, that a lot of people come to you and say, hey, this will make you X amount of money or I'll pay you X to do this. And they lead with the money and that that wasn't for you the most important thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, even to today, I mean, when I get an investment deck or someone makes an offer to me, usually when they start off with the numbers, that already throws me off because I'm not doing any of this for money. I could literally just have no salary for the rest of my life as long as I could do what I love to do. That's more, far more important to me. So um, that's always been kind of an ongoing problem. That's because we've been, as society, we've been driven by money. We've been driven by results. We've been driven by... Um, expectations, but not the the right expectations. I feel that we should be thinking about the question, um, how can I help your business more? What can I do to help you more? And so, instead of saying, this is what I can do for your business, here's X amount of growth. You know, like it's almost like a, a question to help or a, a ask to help versus a, a request or a demand that you can do this for somebody. I don't think an aggressive approach is, is the right way to do things. And we've been seeing this so much with um, more prolific speakers and more influencers out there who have been kind of pushing that idea that we have talked about, you and I have talked about before, is that they are pushing that idea of um, being a little more direct or being more aggressive in business. But I don't think you have to. I think you just enjoy what you do, enjoy what others do, and just try to help everyone. Yeah, it's interesting, but it's, you know, it's like the, the old cliche that, you know, you get more by what you give and it sounds so simplistic, but the problem is most people don't do it. Right. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I laugh about this and I probably don't get nearly the, the requests that you get, but I get all, so many saying like, will you be my mentor or will you, you know, invest in this or, um, will you hire me? And all of that's cool. And I respond. Um, but it, really is kind of this taking mentality as opposed to the ones that I usually help out quite a bit are the ones that say like, Hey, I noticed this, would this help you if, if I did this, or I thought this would be interesting for you. They try to give first and then lo and behold, that small give turns into me giving them something much more than that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I love when um, people kind of, and this is something I always do is that I, uh, I always ask people, how can I help your business or, what can I do for you? Um, and almost every conversation, whenever it's business oriented, because I always feel like that's a great way to start an intro or meet someone or, or even do something for yourself is to help them first and then eventually, you know, have your own ask. And I think that, um, especially for myself, I get a lot of pitch decks and whatnot, but it's always, you know, how can, like, how can you help me? Can you give me this? Um, I want to take this from you, but they forget to ask me what I might need. And I think that for those out there that might be listening, uh, if you're trying to attract an investor, see how you might be able to help them first before helping yourself. And that might open a lot more doors than you could think that you can imagine. What's the best like pitch you've heard or request you've had from somebody asking you for something, but doing it in, in the right way, like you're talking about? Somebody I've invested into or someone that's just approached me it doesn't really matter. Just the one that stands out to you as like, oh, this this was oh, a god. Ask. Um, you know, I'm gonna mention one of my businesses that I've invested into because when we when we made the investment deal, it actually happened a year after, even though I've already uh we're talking about the numbers, but um one of my business partners, Glenn Infante, he's the owner of Ilfi, it's a clothing line. Um when we sat down and talked about his business, he talked about his daughter, who we talked about his um, design job and he, you know, wanted to do more for himself and his, his own life. And I almost felt captivated that I wanted to help him in some capacity that I was willing to give him the investment without knowing my equity in the company, because I wanted to see this guy succeed. And I think that's a great approach that, you know, we'll hear these days that it's always great to have an emotional, um, response or reaction to your investor but 
if you can get your investor to fall in love with you, that's even better. And for me, when I heard his story, I knew what he wanted to do. And I, I saw his artwork. I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be on his team. I didn't want him to be on my team where I'm giving him money for, uh, and, and create that business deal. So we had actually, or I had actually invested into him, but I didn't know my equity until a year later. And we actually sat down and figured it out because I was that compelled to be a part of this, this project. And I wanted to happen. And I think that it's obviously a very risky thing to do to not even have a contract in place. But when you fall in love with the business, when you trust the other person, anything is possible. And I think that that approach of open dialogue and, you know, having a little skin in the, on the, in the game is, is very unorthodox, but it's so much more fulfilling in some ways. And I invest completely a hundred percent with my heart with, and not with my brain at all with that business. Um, it was the first time I ever took that kind of risk, but um, for any investors out there, um, I'm sure you guys are laughing at me for doing that, but I, I recommend trying it, you know, like try to invest in someone who has a compelling story um, and, you know, give them the, the business advice that you normally would as time goes on and, and take your time with it and just in, enjoy each other's company. I think that's what it's really about. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I love that line. If you can get your investor to fall in love with you, that's even better. Um, because we talk mm-hmm. about that a lot in storytelling. Like I was just speaking earlier this week at a university and to a bunch of um, finance grad students. And I asked them to kind of give me their pitch. And this was their personal pitch, right? They don't have companies. They're looking to climb the corporate ladder. But uh, what was fascinating is how few of them had an emotional component to their story. Most of them were um, numbers driven and like, uh, you know, attributes driven. So I went here, I've done this, I, you know, achieved this. And, And after listening to, you know, the first 10, of them, um, th- you could have intermingled the pitches pretty much between all 10 of them. And I think, I, I can't figure out why, but I think people get scared to put in an emotional component and they get really scared to do something different. Um, and so when I kind of gave them mine, which is totally different, has nothing to do with finance, but when I explained my story about how, you know, I used to be a journalist and I was along the border and this one woman changed it all for me with this little teddy bear that she held, Alberto. And, you know, and afterwards, what's the one thing that they remember from the presentation? It's that damn teddy bear. And Carmelita was her name and the woman, because I think it's true. Like what Maya Angelou says that, you know, we, people don't remember what you said or what you did, but they remember the way that you made them feel. But I, gosh, I've never thought about right. that in an investor situation. So I like that. <clears throat> the other thing too, is that um, being emotional, being real, telling a story, um, avoiding the typical business terminology also allows you, like it creates a sense of vulnerability because um, we create those numbers and those expectations and those projections as walls to talk about how great we are or how great we will be. Mm -hmm. But instead, sometimes it's great to talk about our weaknesses or where we need help because that's actually where an investor will be or what he will be able to do for you, he or she will be able to do for you. So I think that's really what it's about is, can you show me you're vulnerable on the first time you meet me? Because if you can't, then how can I trust you later? Hmm. Interesting. So, and, and yeah. when, when somebody comes to you and does something like that, are they telling you their vulnerabilities for their business or themselves or? Uh, I mean, either or. I mean, I just think it's, it's not an easy thing for an entrepreneur to be able to talk about what they're bad at. You know, I can, I'm completely comfortable with doing that today, but I I'm can safe, it's safe to say in my early 20s, I would never want to or even be able to do that because I wanted to show my best, my best self to people. And I think that um, that's kind of what society has been driven to is to have the perfect filter, the perfect picture, the perfect logo, the perfect pitch deck, you know, but sometimes it's okay to have a couple of cracks because that's what makes you beautiful. Sure. I that's mean, what and- gives you character. And I think that's mm-hmm. been um, long forgotten, especially with, um, young entrepreneurs with, with investment decks, they just, uh, they're too busy preparing and making it perfect. But they're, I think that seeing your, your weaknesses makes you more real, makes you believable. Mm-hmm. And, and relatable too. 
Yeah, that's, that's very true. And, and we're such a, an ego-driven society, I think, in so many ways. Um, I have to fight against it all the time myself, um, which is why I like reading like Ego is the Enemy. It's one of the books that I kind of go back to for some of the stoic um, thoughts on, on managing your ego. But for me, in order to you know, I'm a Latina and a woman, and I'm, I would imagine it's it's similar in Indian culture too, but, you know, it's really important the way that you look and what you have and how you're perceived for, for us Latinos, just culturally. Um, and so I have to almost have processes to make me show my cracks more frequently. Um, so I try to, you know, throw cuss words out there and, um, you know, post goofy pictures that don't show me in my best light because I think it's almost like a muscle. If you don't get comfortable showing your, your weaknesses, then you build up this, this barrier um, and it gets hard to do it if you don't put it in process frequently, at least for me. Let, let's talk about, Kumar, the project that you're working on now. Um, I know you have some exciting things coming down the line in December. What's, what's the word? Can you break this down a little bit more for me? So what's something I'm really excited about is a company that I started uh, back in 2013. It's called Rogue Eyewear. And we make glasses out of very unique materials like denim, leather, wood, rubber. But I'm really excited to announce that we're going to be making sunglasses out of stone which has never been done before commercially, and I've already achieved it. I've um, already figured out how to do it, and we um, are going to be launching all of it on December 10th. Um, but we're doing something a little different. We usually launch our collections online, um, direct to retail, but this time I'm launching as a Kickstarter. So those who um, jump on our Kickstarter on December 10th can be the first people to ever have our stone glasses. So super pumped about that and uh, hoping to kind of make a splash into crowdfunding, which I've never actually done before. So constantly learning, constantly doing something new, and uh, hopefully this can kind of make a big splash for um, our company. How fun is that? So talk me through, I'm a, like a sunglass fanatic, so I'll make sure to get on Kickstarter on December 10th, but like stone sunglasses, what do you mean? What kind of stone, <laughs> what does it look like? Is it super heavy? How does that work? It's actually extremely lightweight. So the process is that um, we slice down stone, which is actually slate, um, down to a very thin um, layer, you could say. Um, kind of very similar to how you'd buy tiles for your house, those stone laminate tiles. So we, we cut them down really thin and then we bond them to wood because you can't bond stone to um, plastics or metals that easily. And also obviously the weight would then change if you're using plastics, but we use wood because it's very lightweight. So it's a combination of wood on the inside, stone on the outside, but that also makes them very lightweight and it's completely, you know, handmade uh, and represents nature in, in such a perfect way. So it's been something I've been working on for about two years and I'm just really pumped to be launching it with the first wave of Kickstarter will be the first 200 units, but then should it get bigger, um, you know, we'll obviously open access to everybody else. Um, and we've made three different styles and um, it's got a very cool contrast look with, um, you know, different browns on the inside and then your, your grays and your, your texture of stone on the outside. How fascinating. And what, so the yeah. Rogue Eyewear, I don't know the company extremely well. Like talk me through it. I, mm -hmm. I like the, I like the name in and of itself, but what's kind of your, what's your brand? Uh, well, the name itself explains what we are, and it's something I, I started back in 2013, and the idea, and coming from Cleveland, you know, you don't really hear of fashion brands um, being, or starting in Cleveland, and I was angry about that. You know, I felt a certain way that um, there weren't brands catered to men, there weren't um, brands that had a competitive price point, there weren't brands that used unique materials, there weren't brands that represented me. So I created Rogue out of an emotion of how I felt going to these trade shows and just seeing the typical sunglasses, you know, with, with companies like Ray-Ban and Oakley, they've been making the same exact pair for the last 20, 30 years. Nothing has changed. The only thing that's changed is the price point's only gone up. So for me, I wanted to change the industry. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to go rogue, literally. And that was the name overnight. I just knew that was who I am and what my customers are and, and what I want for the company. So we tried to instill that in every way, whether it's the materials, the price point, the concepts, the photo shoots. We always try to do things a little different from your typical sunglass company. And uh, it's been working, working great so far. 
That's fan- so. So where can people buy these? Rogue.com, or do they buy them in retail stores? Uh, How does that work? Yeah, we sell we sell direct to consumer online. It's uh, rogue eyewearcom It's r o g u e e y e w e a r dot com. How fun! And it's all made and designed here in the U.S. Uh, half and half right now. Um, we do half in Italy, half in China. Oh, wow. um, but I am working right now um, to actually produce in Ohio because a lot of people don't know this, but Akron, Ohio, home of LeBron James, which isn't too far off from Cleveland, is one of the largest exporters of rubber in the U.S. And I happen to produce a ton of rubber sunglasses. So working on that project for 2018 and trying to see if there are ways to um, produce glasses uh, domestically. But it's really hard because it's not your typical fashion brand where it's just, you know, thread cloth. We're talking about hinges, glass, um, packaging, plastics, denim, you know, you name it. There's so many materials required. There's about nine pieces required to make a pair of sunglasses. So it's not as easily produced here in the U.S. I can imagine. Yet. And like yeah. in that vein, for, for those listening who are starting, you know, a fashion company or a manufacturing company, like what, what was the biggest surprise you had when you started this type of, of company? What was the thing that you uh, expected the truth, the truth, the most surprising, the most surprising thing that I, I found was that, you know, I made this brand for Cleveland. And in the beginning, in my first few lines, I used specific colors that were representative of Cleveland sports. And I used Cleveland imagery throughout the, the backgrounds very heavily on purpose because I wanted this to be something for my hometown. And ironically enough, um, some of the pairs that weren't even designed with our, you know, Cleveland colorways ended up being purchased more in Europe and other places beyond the U.S. And I was so confused. Why is this happening? Why would somebody in London be interested in buying a pair that was designed for Cleveland? And I started to realize that there was a shift in the industry because brands like Prada, Gucci, and a lot of the European brands, you know, they're so, they're just so heavily promoted in Europe and they're seen everywhere. But the European market, um, the overseas market have seen those big brands for so long that they are looking for the U.S. brand. They are looking for something different. So it turned out I designed something for my hometown, but the rest of the world was watching too, and they were interested. So now my customer base has grown to the point where I sell just as much overseas than I do domestically. It's almost 50-50, which was a huge surprise to me. I did not expect that I'd be um, communicating and, and uh, working with customers across, you know, across the the world. So that's been kind of a pleasant surprise. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great thing to have happen. But I, I do imagine, mm-hmm. and I recall in all of pretty much all of my businesses, the, the art of the pivot has got to be one of the most important things to learn as an entrepreneur, because I'm not sure anything really ever goes exactly like I think it's going to. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's, it's almost meant for that to happen in some ways, if this product is meant to be in market or um, you are meant to stay with it, then in a sense, the universe will kind of give you a new direction or a new opportunity. It's up to you to take it if you want to. And in my case, I could have stayed in snowy old Cleveland trying to sell glasses locally, but I had some opportunity to see that. Every continent and every, uh, you know, every major state now. So it's one of those things, you know, you have to kind of decide for yourself. Do you want to take that step forward? Do you want to see what's past that next door? And in my case, I did. And here we are, you know, now launching stone sunglasses on our Kickstarter. I can't wait. So, okay. I've got a few like yeah. rapid fire ones for you before I let you get back to, yeah. you know, okay. like just those small little to do's you have for the next couple yeah. months. Um, but what, when you're thinking about the people on this who are listening to this podcast, a lot of them are entrepreneurs or fellow striving humans. Um, what, what would be like the one thing you want them to take away from our conversation today, from your life, from your, you know, successes and failures? What would be like the one thing? You know, I, we talked about the, the short-term goals. I think that's such a big thing that's so like often forgotten. And I think that I would tell anyone that's listening to really write down goals, they don't have to be work-related all the time. I think that we've come to a place now where we look at the Mark Zuckerbergs and, and all these big guys who created billion-dollar companies, and we're trying to achieve something that 
isn't necessarily easy or is maybe not meant for our, our lives. And we have to be okay with that. Success is defined by what you want it to be. And I think that's become kind of an ongoing topic of, of recent times because, you know, with the idea, like I said in my quote, where entrepreneurs are skipping the, you know, climbing the ladder and they're trying to take a rocket. I think that we've, we've grown into a society where we are trying to create those rockets to get to the top, but who says being on the top is the best thing anyways. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the one thing I want to tell people is celebrate your, your, your short-term goals, celebrate your short-term successes. And, and don't forget that um, you have to be happy with what you're doing now, not happy with what you're doing later. And that's kind of been something I've been dealing with myself, my friends have been dealing with, and I'm sure plenty of other people are kind of forgetting that, you know, you don't have to be the most famous person at this, or you don't have to be the biggest person about this. Just, just be happy that you get to do what you enjoy and, um, you know, enjoy the journey at the same time. It's a constant struggle for me, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, This one's a little bit related, but let's get a little controversial. So, so what is one thing that you believe wholeheartedly that almost no one agrees with you on? That's a tough one. That's (laughs) tough because, you know, as a, as a leader or or an entrepreneur, you have to, um, you have to be accommodating in some ways. Um, The one thing I would say that I think that's not talked about often or people don't think about it much is the idea of future. You know, for me, I'm a futurist. I might be working on these fashion brands and whatnot today, but I see myself working in tech and science, some similar to what Elon Musk might be, but not maybe on his level in my future. Um, but I've noticed that we don't talk about it as much. It's not talked about in school. It's not encouraged at all with people. And whenever you talk about it, people will always kind of brush it off saying, oh, that's not something I can do or it's not something that's meant for me. But we all as humans need this. You know, for the sake of our own humanity, we need all of us to think about those things and, and work on those things. Because if we're all entrepreneurs, we should all be thinking about the longevity of our lives, the longevity of our businesses, the longevity of our family. So I think that we all have to start taking part in some way. And I'm sure everyone will say, yes, I agree. But the question is, what are you doing about it? For me, I see myself making investments strategically and purposely to help um, drive, you know, biotech or medicine or um, just science in general, because I think that's our future. And I think that we need to see more entrepreneurs doing that. We need to see more people taking initiative to, to, to do that. So it's not necessarily controversial, but I think that um, it is something that we need to be aware of now because our world isn't exactly getting any nicer and it's not, our lives aren't getting any better. We have to work in a different way now, especially as um, very entrepreneurial people. I think we're the ones that can do that. We have yet to actually dive into that world to start making real impact. Yeah. The action associated with that is so important. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to contemplate yeah. a little bit. Um, yeah. Really I think anyone who's a successful entrepreneur at this point who has generated a lot of money over time should start thinking about that because that's your way of con- like contributing. It's, it's cool to donate to uh, certain foundations. It's cool to, donate to charities, but you yourself can be donated in some way towards a project. And I think that's where entrepreneurs in the future are going to be needed the most. And for me, um, that's something I'm passionate about. Uh, it's something I read about all the time. And um, sorry, someone just came to the door. My bad. <laughs> you know, on. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Okay, so I definitely agree with all of that. Much to think about. So let's let's end with two last little short questions here. One, do you have a, mm-hmm. a quote or sort of a mantra that you live by? Um, it's one thing that I've always kind of stuck by with Simon Sinek, who I was actually lucky enough to meet last week at this conference. But he always said, "Start with the why, not with the what," and that kind of ties in everything we've talked about and everything Simon Sinek says has kind of influenced my career when it came to branding and purpose and, and, and uh, design in some ways. And I always fell in love with his specific purpose on why not what, and that's been something for me that's been my own personal mantra. And I do that with nearly everything that I work on. So that's something I would um, say that I'd share with all of you. 
And what about, you know, I'm really big. We talked about reading in the beginning. You're big on reading. I am too. I, I sort of mm-hmm. put together uh, my own personal Bible of words and phrases that um, inspire me in some way or another for all the challenges of life. Do you have a book that you go back to continuously for guidance? Um, yeah, there's actually one book. Um, it's very left field. It's not very business, but it's connected to business in some ways. And it's called The Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a famous samurai from a few hundred years ago um, in Japan. Every uh, major Japanese businessman, every MBA student in Japan actually ends up reading this book at some point. And I found it actually my freshman year of college because I took this Japanese course. And, they mentioned it. and ever since they mentioned it, I was really curious but the book actually only talks about the way of the sword and how you enter battle and they talk about timing and precision and um, understanding your enemy those same principles can eventually be correlated to business so it's a very poetic way of looking at things in a very different format but every passage everything he talks about can be converted into a, a business lesson and i think that's super cool because we're often reading those self-improvement books. We're often reading books about how to improve business. It's very direct and, 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 and easy to read. But this book is a little more abstract, a little more different. It's a great read for those who want to be different and, um, differently. You know, it's very abstract. And I think that's great for um, developing yourself. So that's a book that I always kind of fall back. It was um, The Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi. Perfect. I'll make sure to link it. I can't wait to read it. I haven't heard of that one before. And I'm mm-hmm. a little bit of a... Uh, I don't know, a, a book, I wouldn't say connoisseur, but I know I have way too many of them in my house in general. Um, okay, my yeah. friend. Well, so if, if anybody wants to learn more about Kumar, you can go to kumar-aurora.com. You can check out Rogue Eyewear. Um, you can also follow him at uh, K-Aurora, A-R-O-R-A-007. You can definitely see him on Cleveland Hustles, um, and you can check out his Kickstarter on December 10th. So with that, Kumar, anyone mm-hmm. anything you want to leave everybody with? Yeah, that all sounds great. Perfect. Well, we're excited to see what you discover and invest in next. So thanks again for hanging, my friend. Of course. Take care. Bye.